welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation, and instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star and then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Andrea. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect Education Workshop, Living with Cancer Throughout the Cancer Journey. I have to say this is a rather ambitious program, and, we, and this program will last for 90 minutes. And we have wonderful speakers on our program today. It's, it's an amazing program, I have to say. And we also, this is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations. And we bring this to you in the hope that you'll really get some really interesting information from the concept of living with cancer throughout the cancer journey, which many of you are doing. And so we've tried to tease out the points that are really important to think about. Um, we have on the call today many of you. It's really the, both the collaborative partners have uh, we helped to promote the program as well as your interest in the program. And we have over 725 participants on the call today. So there are many of you on the call. This is a very large call. And we also have international participants from Algeria, Canada, Greece, Japan, Vietnam, and the UK. So we really have people from all over the world on this call. And it's a bit of a global call. Um, and today's program is supported by EMD Serrano, and I really want to thank them for their support of this program today. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Edith Mitchell. Dr. Mitchell is Clinical Professor of Medicine and Medical Oncology, Department of Medical Oncology. She's also Director, Center to Eliminate Cancer Disparities. She's Associate Director, Diversity Affairs. Sydney Kimmel Cancer Center at Jefferson, and she's immediate past president of the National Medical Association. She also is a member of the Moonshot Blue Ribbon Panel, the National Cancer Institute um, Blue Ribbon Panel. And so um, it's a great pleasure for me to turn this program over to Dr. Mitchell. Thank you, Dr. Messner, for that introduction and for the invitation to be a part of this illustrious panel this afternoon. And thanks to the patients and advocates and caretakers who have joined us for this call and your time uh, to participate in this conversation. I will discuss two areas that are very important for cancer treatments now. One is the overview of novel cancer treatments, and the second, the role of precision medicine in cancer treatment. There are many types of cancer treatments. The types of treatments that a patient may experience will depend on the type of cancer that you have, how advanced it is, and the person. Uh, focus on the patient is now a part of what we call precision medicine. Some patients with cancer will only have one treatment, uh, but other patients may have a combination of treatments such as surgery, chemotherapy, and or radiation therapy. Other treatments may include also immunotherapy, targeted therapies, or hormonal therapies. 
and all of these treatments together are called precision medicine and making sure that each patient has the one treatment or the combination of treatments that are are appropriate for their care. Therefore, patient's treatment may vary considerably from one cancer to another or from one patient to another. Uh, The role of clinical trials, very important. And for some patients, clinical trials or research studies that involve people may be very important. So understanding the clinical trials, how they work, and if you should decide to participate in a clinical trial, very important. And therefore, uh, thinking about all of this is uh, can be sometimes overwhelming and consequently very important to talk to your doctor, talk to the medical staff to answer your questions. So what do we mean by precision medicine and novel cancer treatments? It's all a part of integrating cancer treatment together. Uh, And I'll talk about some of those new technologies that have been developed. Uh, It's very important that not only do we consider cancer treatment, but also the overall patient, and therefore including this in the patient's treatment plan. So precision medicine became very important as a topic uh, after the January uh, 2015 uh, lecture by President Obama, where he announced that there was new funding for precision medicine initiatives. And what that meant uh, was that, for, first, to characterize the patient's tumor uh, by finding the genome or the genetic makeup of the patient's tumor, then analyzing this data with the patient and therefore providing the physician treating the patient an analysis of the tumor and the likelihood of medications being more effective. So the overall focus is on the patient. Whether the differences between patients um, is related to gender, age, uh, type of cancer, or whether the patient has other illnesses, each patient ends up with an individual plan that is related just to the patient and to their tumor. So thus, precision medicine. Another area of focus for the patients uh, is related to um, managing or preventing the side effects of treatment or follow-up, and then also follow-up of the patient after treatment. So each patient has an individual plan. It is precise medicine or precision medicine. It is focused on that patient. And through this, we are able to have definitive plans for patients that are more specific because we realize that each tumor is different, each tumor in various disease processes different, 
and unique, and therefore developing a plan that is individualized for the given patient and is precision medicine uh, is the new initiative uh, in medicine. Now, through the Cancer Moonshot, uh, it is very apparent that the National Cancer Institute's research programs are dedicated to, again, finding new and better treatments for, for patients that are focused on the patient, on the tumor, and therefore more specific. Uh, Vice President Biden's uh, Moonshot Initiative does continue, and there are therefore more efforts toward finding new cures, better cures for cancer, and making sure that each patient's treatment is individualized. Not only is treatment individualized, but the follow-up after treatment individualized, very important, and very important for each patient such that there is a post-treatment or after-treatment plan that allows the patient to be evaluated after treatment and therefore follow-up after treatment is a part of the role of precision medicine. Dr. Messner, I thank you so much for this opportunity and look forward to hearing the other panel members speak. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Mitchell. That was really extraordinary, wonderful introduction to the entire call. And um, so thank you so much. And our next speaker is Dr. Stuart Fleischman. Dr. Fleischman is founding director, Cancer Support Services, Continuum Cancer Centers of New York, Accreditation Surveyor, American College of Surgeons, Commission on Cancer. And Dr. Fleischman is going to be addressing the importance of supportive care, site-specific cancers, and the adult lifespan, cancer journey across the continuum of care. It's now my great pleasure to turn this program over to Dr. Fleischman. Thank you, Dr. Messner. And again, thank you, everybody, for being on this call. Um, Dr. Mitchell gave a really good overview of where we've come in only a relatively short number of years as far as um, additional types of treatments and the breadth and the scope of treatments in cancer that we really have not had in the past, especially the newer molecular um, treatments that target specific markers and specific facets of the cancer cells themselves, which seem to have um, less in the way of side effects and are easier to take for many people than um, the traditional uh, chemotherapies and radiation therapy. However, those still remain very important aspects of care. Um, the, the quiet revolution in cancer, which doesn't get as much publicity as the kinds of things that Dr. Mitchell spoke about in the first part of her talk, are really about the major advances in the supportive care of people with cancer. Um, and that uh, really runs the uh, gamut and the, from um, really renewed value in the human aspects of care, um, the idea that uh, a person who has cancer um, goes through cancer in a way that 
is somewhat like the other folks who get it, but also uh, in ways that are totally individual and that um, the field has responded by having experts and services in place to be able to um, help that along. In addition, the advances in the treatment or even prevention of nausea and vomiting or pain, uh, our knowledge about fatigue, our knowledge about cancer nutrition, our knowledge about the important aspect of movement during, um, during and after treatment, has really blossomed in the last number of years. And probably that's because of a number of reasons, that uh, as you heard, the care has gotten somewhat more technical. Sometimes people feel that's a code name for less personal or um, highly technical um, to the point where the machine is the focus of treatment rather than the individual, and we have certainly moved back from that. Um, the other thing that has really brought this quiet revolution around is that uh, many people are living a lot longer with uh, have, having had cancer than they've ever had before. Um, and um, I think the um, public uh, has really um, sort of pushed the envelope a little bit, which is great in making sure that the field um, has the techniques uh, that are evidence-based, that are um, common sense-based, to help people adjust from the time in which they're in care until the, for the rest of the time that they have. Um, and uh, we've never really focused on that as a field before, and that's uh, somewhat new. And um, the estimates are that uh, there may be about 22 million cancer survivors by the year 2022. So we really have a, a lot of people to make sure um, that they're getting the best care, that they're on a proper vigilance schedule, and they're doing the right things and we're doing the right things to really restore uh, whatever, as much of the functionality as we all have and improve uh, quality of life. Um, the, uh, those are sort of broad strokes and big generalizations, but as we know, the details in cancer are terribly important. And I think we have learned over these years as well that cancer is not one thing, but it's a number of different um, types of illnesses. Um, they're under the umbrella of cancer being that they, they, what they have in common is uh, sometimes rapidly dividing cells that don't have enough space in the body or um, take over the functions of some of the cells of the body. But beyond that, they are somewhat different from each other. So uh, we also have gained some respect for our old, um, our, our sort of old framework, which was for cancer, get, your, get diagnosed early, and once the diagnosis is confirmed, and treatment plan uh, is based upon both the best evidence in the literature, the best experience of the clinicians, and the in, the the the. Um, characteristics of the individual themselves that patients and families know a lot better than we do since we usually meet people for the first time at the time of cancer treatment. The uh, sort of the, the, uh, uh, the old sort of paradigm, the old sort of pattern was hit it early, hit it fast, hit it hard. And uh, that is still the case. Um, you know, some, 
some folks, especially in the United States, say it's just like when we settled the West. You know, we moved out um, on, our, on our horse and buggies, and um, we did as much as we could to make sure that that land could be as productive as possible. We have learned, though, that in cancer, because of the individual variations um, between people as well as the variations between the types of cancer, sometimes the best thing to do is go a little slower. And we are learning a lot more about that than ever before, but it is somewhat of a sort of a counterintuitive message that we've given um, compared to the message we've given in the past. So I think if there's one aspect of all of this uh, and the, so the takeaway message for people is to make sure that you communicate. You are part of the team that treats your cancer. Um, you are maybe one of the most important people in that team because this is all happening to you. And um, you are the expert in how you've lived your life and the kinds of things that you do that help you feel better and the kinds of things that are done that may not make you feel well. And um, the decision-making really needs to be a joint effort. But communicating things that may seem almost unimportant is really a, a very important message and maybe one of the major takeaway messages from, uh, from this uh, teleconference today. If um, patients and families don't tell us how they're doing, um, it makes it really hard because we don't know, number one, and number two, there may be something that we can do to really help the situation along. Um, when I teach about this to um, doctors and, and to lecture to patients and, and family members, I often um, compare this to what happens when your child comes home from school and you say, Johnny, what did you do in school today? And the answer we get back is nothing. And when we walk into the examining room, sometimes people are trying to be really polite. They don't want to annoy us. They're afraid we'll stop the treatments. Um, they don't want to be burdensome. Um, you know, Mr. Jones, how are things coming along? And Mr. Jones often says, fine. And whoever's there with Mr. Jones is in the background telling us that things aren't so fine. So that's, we, we need to move beyond that sort of model and make sure that everybody really is able to tell us the kinds of things that are happening. Something's happening in your body that you don't understand or that may be some, something new. It may be inconsequential. It may not be tell us. So communication is really um, the heart of the matter. Um, and for the people who... Uh, find that they have the kind of cancer where the sort of slow approach is better than the fast approach. Um, again, this is the kind of thing that um, just goes against so much of what we have done in the field. Get a second opinion if you can, if your insurance allows it. Most insurances will allow that at this point. Uh, but make sure that that's a logical approach for what's both the evidence basis in the field and what's best for you. So it's it's hard to uh, generalize, but certain types of leukemia, certain types of even solid tumors, and certain types of, um, of myeloma, maybe the smartest thing to do is ease into treatment. And um, again, that's a really solid discussion with you and the treatment team and often um, a second opinion. So uh, don't be surprised if um, really um, expert opinions will suggest Less may be more at first, uh, especially um, for certain types of cancers or especially if there are other illnesses that someone has that may make the treatment a little more difficult to take.
so with this all in mind, um, the field has adopted sort of a, um, a new theme, which is patient-centered care, and you're going to be hearing more about this both uh, in the rest of this call and um, in the treatment centers when you go there. Um, to me, it seems um, somewhat odd to say that because I've always felt that patients were, this, were the center of the circle of care. But uh, it seems that um, over the years, um, whether it's the institutions or the insurance companies or the providers, um, sometimes their needs may have seemed more important. And now the field has um, really moved back to making sure that patients and families are back in the center of the, of the care circle. And it is really um, the most important um, aspect of care is to make sure that patient and family speaks up and they uh, tell us how they've coped before, what, what they do successfully to get through um, hard times, and it's our job to help them out as much as possible with that. So in, um, from a somewhat more bureaucratic point of view, um, the field has um, indicated three things that it can do, um, most of it stemming from a very influential report from the Institute of Medicine about um, how people move from the end of their cancer treatment into a period of survivorship. And the kinds of things that uh, we're now doing is really paying some more attention or closer attention to the way that somebody goes through this, what may seem large, daunting system about care. Uh, often many of the tests that are need, need to be done are done on an outpatient basis, an ambulatory basis in the community. It means going from place to place. It means coordinating appointments, coordinating insurance referrals. There's a lot of this coordinating that has formally been done in the hospital and is now um, the responsibility of patients and families in order to get this done in the community. So the field has responded by actually having um, someone to help this process along. Uh, often, but not always, but often called a patient navigator. Um, and if there is a problem in getting things scheduled, in figuring out who's who, what's what, um, there should be within um, each accredited cancer center um, or the offices that are associated with the, the accredited cancer centers, and there are 1,500 across the country, someone who you can call who knows the system and may be able to point you in the right direction. So that's sort of one thing that has been added to respond to this, um, this new, old, which is really old movement of making sure that uh, patients and families can get the most out of their care. The second thing would be to really pay more attention to your symptoms and how you're doing and even uh, making sure to ask how are you. Um, it's really important to do that, and it's important for you to be honest and not give the socially acceptable answer. It's also important for us to know what to do about the kinds of things you're telling us about. And that often means having access to a proper um, nutrition services, a dietitian or a nutritionist who has extra training in cancer-related types of things, whether it's feeding tubes or taste changes or the kinds of things that happen during cancer. Um, a physical therapist or some sort of a rehabilitation program or even a prehabilitation program to help people who have the option of 
um, a few weeks before their cancer treatment of getting involved in some sort of movement activity, if possible, depending upon um, you know the, your situation. And that movement may even be just some chair stretching, if that's what you can do. There's a wide variety of things. Um, and um, access to perhaps spiritual services or pastoral care, access to um, uh, a counselor who understands what the pro what the uh, situation is about, and to help with some um, advice as well as uh, a good ear um, to make sure that you get through as much as possible in a way the way that you cope the best. Um, the other component of this is really providing every patient, and this will happen over the course of many years. We're now up to 25% um, uh, according to our accreditation schedule. 25% um, of, of the people finishing their cancer treatment, and that will edge towards 100% over the next few years, actually get a document that says, here's the information you need to know. Here's the information your primary care doctor needs to know. This is the kind of cancer you've had. This is the kind of treatment you've had. This is what we recommend as far as um, maintenance schedule, as far as testing and all that. And these are the things you need to know personally to make sure that you stay as healthy as possible. And those are the kinds of things we generally often don't like to hear about, which is proper diet and proper movement or exercise and um, the kinds of things that are very sometimes difficult to, um, to incorporate into busy lives or lives, uh, our lives at times when we feel debilitated. So these are the kinds of things that the, sort of the field has done to incorporate uh, these sorts of patient-centered services back into the mainstream of cancer medicine so that patients and families can um, can really um, do as well as they can afterwards. And for different people, that means sometimes different things. Um, sometimes it really means um, for folks who are, are mostly in bed, it means the kinds of exercises that they can do in bed. It's not just for someone else. There is a personalized recovery plan or maintenance plan for everybody that goes through cancer. And uh, now we're at a point where it's back in the mainstream of care. So I believe I've touched on the points um, that are in the outline. I hope we'll have lots of time for questions later, and I'll turn this back over to Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Fleischman. That was very comprehensive and really excellent. And yes, we will have time for questions, so everyone start keeping track of your questions because you will have time um, to have questions for all of our speakers, so thank you. Um, and our next speaker, and I have to just say that um, this is a multidisciplinary team that we have assembled today. Um, so both Dr. Mitchell and Dr. Fleischman are medical oncologists, and, um, and I'm going to introduce each of the other speakers by their discipline, but we have both um, nursing and social work also represented here. And um, so we have a wide a range of people who actually can address your questions during the Q&A as well and for you to actually get information from. So our next speaker is Dr. Barbara Given. Dr. Given is University Distinguished Professor, Director of the PhD Program, College of Nursing, Michigan State University. And um, Dr. Dr. Given is going to address the role of the caregiver across the continuum of care in the cancer journey. So focusing on the caregiver now and the importance of support from the caregiver in adherence and persistence. 
it's now my pleasure to turn this program over to Dr. Gibbon. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm pleased to be here and to have the chance to talk to you. I think if uh, we all listen carefully to Dr. Fleischman, he talked very much about the patient perspective, but also mentioned the family all the way through. So uh, hopefully what I will uh, talk about will really enhance and enforce what he has mentioned about the role for the patient, but I'm moving on to the uh, family caregiver. And for me, the family caregiver is really the coordinator and the glue that holds all of it together in this very complex uh, system we have today of healthcare and cancer care where we've talked about patient-centered care, we've also talked about the moonshot, and we've also talked about precision medicine. Basically, the literature would indicate that in today's world, 80%, if not more, of the care that the cancer patients get is in the uh, realm of the family member being uh, responsible along with the patient for that. And many patients really don't have hospitalizations or very much time uh, with uh, professionals. And if it is, it's clinic clinical visits. And with the oral agents that we have now for that, those intervals may be four and six weeks apart, if not uh, more in some settings. So it does fall to the patient and family to be responsible. So the question for the family caregiver is, are you prepared? Uh, and how do you prepare to really be responsible along with the patient for the care that they are getting? And so, uh, as it has been indicated before, it depends a lot on the specific organ that's involved, meaning the type of cancer, and then certainly the stage and what the treatment is going to be. But from the beginning, uh, the family caregiver is very responsible for being involved uh, in the care, understanding the plan of care, and if the patient is hospitalized at the point of discharge, for understanding what the follow-up care is going to be and the long-term care, as Dr. Fleischman indicated, uh, that we get uh, sheets now that go back to primary care providers and family members that outline what the next steps are and what the intervals for follow-up should be, whether it's three months, six months, one year, or whatever it is. Uh, the trajectory or the period uh, and cor course of time is uh, from diagnosis, treatment, maintenance, meaning uh, watching going forward, which is also the point often of survivorship, which has been mentioned, and then palliative care and end of life. And the family member's uh, family caregiver is involved in all of those phases, uh, but at different levels. And the, the different levels would be at the diagnosis, helping with decisions for treatment, encouraging the patient for second opinions, providing emotional support and listening and communicating during the decision making, and really uh, perhaps even asking for a family conference so that the uh, treatment uh, trajectory could actually be outlined and explained so that everybody understood and there's numerous clinics that do have these family meetings and care conferences where this is talked about. Once the decision is made uh, for the treatment then, I think is a very, very critical point for the family member because these are the periods when the patient is usually on treatment of some kind where the whole uh, 
monitoring and surveillance along with the patient for side effects and adverse events occurs because, as I said, today a lot of this is no longer inpatient, but it's really outpatient. So family members should get involved with monitoring of the symptoms and side effects, helping the patient decide when it's time to really report this to the uh, care professional so that help can be obtained, uh, helping the patient take or manage the drugs, be an advocate so the uh, patient has the information that they need, uh, and help get the information, help in uh, finding uh, community resources if those are necessary, such as home care or uh, a location of some of the uh, physical therapy or occupational therapy that may be necessary. And also then really helping get the medications. Again, for in the new treatment, a lot of the medications are oral medications, and so sometimes those are not available at your local pharmacy, but specialty pharmacy. And then overall in this period of time, coordinating the different appointments and the follow-up for lab and diagnostic tests. When the patient gets the maintenance, what I call the treatment maintenance period, sometimes they're on adjuvant therapy, but also these are periods of time where the patient may need more follow-up at uh, intervals uh, that are longer than, you know, weekly or every three to four weeks or whatever. They may be months. But it is critical that those follow-ups happen. And sometimes everybody, especially patients, are tired of all these appointments and want to say, well, maybe we can skip this one. Well, it's important for the family member to see that this follow-up is there, especially as you enter this phase. We've talked about uh, survivorship a bit. Dr. Fleischman mentioned that. And there should be a plan of care that is available at the end of treatment so that the patient and family members understand what necessary follow-up is there. And there's, this should be in writing, and these survivorship care plans should be available. And they should be provided to primary care, but it's important that family members understand those so that they can help interpret for primary care, because the primary care providers don't know all what the family members and patients have been through. And sometimes we forget to remind them so that if there are side effects or light effects or long-term effects that occur, such as cardiac effects or pulmonary effects or some of these uh, later stage uh, things that occur, uh, it's the family members who have to say, remember your drug you were on, maybe your chemotherapy, had a cardiac side effect. And the primary care uh, physician or nurse may not think to ask for that. So family members can be key uh, informants at that period of time. Uh, when uh, palliative care is um, comes, then again, the family member has a very important role, and their role becomes more important probably in helping to make decisions and helping move forward in problem solving. And for me, this is such a, a period of time because I think so many people wait too long for palliative care. And I think what we find, at least in community hospitals is and community settings, is uh, the providers are often reluctant to raise the issue that now we have gotten to the point where supportive care through palliative care is important. So again, I think the family member is so key. And we have so much information about how to provide comfort in this period of time 
that patients and their family members should not have to suffer alone as long as they do, at least in the communities. I think we need to ask for help. And I feel the same way about uh, end-of-life care and going on to hospice. Again, it's the family member who then has more uh, important role and more to carry on, and so it is key that they uh, get involved. Um, moving on to um, adherence and persistence, uh, I think, again, it's practical support that family members have. I think as far as adherence or actually taking the medication, again, family members are so important as far as helping the, uh, uh, set a plan for the intervals, again, with some of the complexity of treatments. Uh, patients have their medications for their heart disease and their lung disease and their arthritis, and now we're adding other medications for them to take. So I think the family member can have a very important role at this point in time of helping to organize the plan of care uh, so that the, um, not just organize the plan of care, but actually organize the intervals for taking medications. And with the medications, especially the new ones that we have for cancer care, uh, there's uh, intervals to take them that are very key to get maximum effectiveness out of them, and also some that you're to take with foods, some that you're not to take with foods, some that you're to take so many hours uh, from foods. And so again, the family members can be uh, instrumental in helping the patient schedule the time and organize themselves so that they can actually uh, do this in a proper way so that it isn't so uh, conflicting and so stressful to try and remember everything. There's so many uh, resources out now for remembering taking meds and so many apps and so many reminders and so many different kinds of pill boxes and everything that, again, the family members can really help uh, set all of this up uh, so that it's fairly organized and uh, consistent in moving through. But providing the support for the patient of how important it is to take these meds and take them at the intervals, and again, that's whether it's medications for the side effects, supportive care drugs, or the actual oral cancer medication itself, I think the family members can help with managing the side effects so that the patient can actually stay on them. The persistence piece is really about uh, continuing to take the meds on a long-term basis. And what that means is staying on the meds, not stopping them too soon. What we find in a number of medications where patients have to continue taking these for three to five years, such as with breast cancer, some of the therapies, the aromatase inhibitors and whatever, that patients actually stop taking them at about 18 months to Two years, a large proportion of patients stop. So again, the family members can be the cheerleaders at this point in time to help the patients take them and then to remember that uh, if there are side effects, that they really ask the physicians for help for managing the side effects so that they can stay on. So persistence is really uh, measured in time, that is days, months, and years to stay on the medication getting the medications refilled when they really need to, understanding the importance of the continuation of therapy so that you're not stopping too, too soon, and that you understand the consequences and the patient understands the consequences. If they do stop the medication too soon, that it's hard to really have the long-term survivorship that 
we are privileged to have because of good medical care. So those are my thoughts on adherence and persistence and family members across the care continuum. Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Gibbon. That was outstanding and very, comp very comprehensive. And we so appreciate um, the focus, again, on the caregiver and how important their role is in this whole process. Uh, um, Dr. Gibbon is an oncology uh, nurse, and she also is quite an expert on caregiving, so we're delighted to have her on this call today. Thank you. And our next speaker on today's call is Dr. Guadalupe Palos, Dr. Lupe Palos. Uh, Dr. Palos is both a nurse and social worker and doctor of public health, so we have uh, many different roles Dr. Palos uh, has here. She's clinical research manager, division of medical affairs, Department of Cancer Survivorship, University of Texas, MD Anderson Cancer Center. Dr. Palos is going to address a number of issues, food insecurity and cancer treatments, culturally diverse populations, and shared decision-making across cultures. It's my pleasure now to turn the program over to Dr. Palos. Thank you, Carolyn, uh, for that introduction. And I thank you to all my panel colleagues and listeners that um, are on this call. This call is very comprehensive, and it covers many essential topics. And my partners on this panel have covered critical topics that influence the cancer experience. They've also offered some different strategies to address some of the challenges that patients, caregivers, and providers encounter throughout the cancer trajectory. I'm going to start off with a, a little uh, story for you. As parents, uh, parents often face the challenge of having a child who at times will refuse to eat, especially when it comes to eating um, healthy food. When this situation occurred in our household, my mother would tell us stories of children living in faraway places in the world who wished for the very food we were rebelling against, usually something nutritious like beets or spinach. Of course, then we ate our food, not because we believed children would actually want to eat these veggies on their own, but because we believed that perhaps, just maybe, there were children who did not have enough food of any type to eat. So now let's fast forward to 2017, and most likely each of us listening today can recall seeing or reading a sign, a post, or an article talking about world hunger and the need to donate to food banks. Only now, several of these calls for help come from people living in our own neighborhoods or communities, and often these calls for help are coming from cancer patients and their families. The phenomena and word hunger is increasingly being referred to as food insecurity. In this call today, I will use both terms interchangeably. Food insecurity exists when a person does not have access to enough food to live a healthy life. Why are we addressing hunger in this call today? Well, recent studies suggest that food insecurity can have a significant impact on the medically ill, including those diagnosed with cancer. Why? Because those who are ill may be forced to choose between food and necessary medical treatment. If people do not have the means to fill a basic need, such as having adequate food, a domino effect will follow. Patients may choose to delay medical care or not fill the prescription. In fact, Dr. Givens did an excellent job discussing the importance of adherence to a medication or treatment plan. Food insecurity has been found to have an impact on cancer patients, and there's been a few studies conducted by research from Memorial Sloan Kettering that have addressed food insecurity specifically in our cancer population, and even more specifically on cancer patients who are from diverse cultural groups. 
There's a belief that cancer patients represent an especially vulnerable group because of the disease process itself. It's so complex and so can have such a long and unpredictable trajectory. And the intensity of the treatment protocols will also affect the cancer patients and their ability to eat and maintain a good nutritional status. So why is this important again to us on this call today? Well, for two reasons. For those individuals who are dealing with food insecurity, and some may be on this call today, they must find a way to let their providers know about this hardship. Many times patients and their families are embarrassed to say anything to their health care team. Yet this information is, is important because having good nutrition or access to food is critical when dealing with cancer, particularly during treatment. And as for providers listening today, we must learn to ask our patients and their family members about their ability to access food, especially nutritional food. When a patient's provider, when a patient's provider initiates the conversation on this topic, it can help the patient and their family members feel more comfortable about discussing it and providing the information. The topic of access to enough food must be regarded as an integral component of any patient, provider, or family encounter. Discussion about hunger must not be regarded as an afterthought or left up to a social worker or a case manager. These, there are resources available to help people who struggle with hunger. So, uh, and Ms. Kelly is going to discuss some of these resources in a few moments. But everyone on the team must understand this is an important aspect of the cancer treatment regimen. This type of discussion is an integral part of patient-centered communication. In a little bit, Dr. Bevins will elaborate on the importance of patient-centered care and will um, address some of the issues that go along with that. Patient-provider family communication throughout the cancer experience can influence patient outcomes. This is particularly true when working with patients who represent diverse cultural, racial, and ethnic groups. And when we talk about culture, culture does not just refer to people of color or different races. It can refer to differences in age groups, our culture of being an elder, our culture of being an adolescent. Um, it can refer um, to where we live, the culture of being a rural cancer patient versus the culture of being an urban cancer patient. So culture is very important, and it also integrates religious cultures, all the different uh, traditions and norms that go along with different uh, religious or spiritual groups. Certain topics, including food insecurity, are often challenging to discuss in patient-provider encounters. We must remember culture drives communication across the trajectory of the cancer experience. Providers, patients, and their families must be willing to understand one another's worldview. The, uh, and a person's worldview towards cancer, that's usually des described as the way one interprets their cancer experience. And it's influenced by various factors, including norms and taboos um, about uh, practices, or even about foods, like what can or cannot be eating, eaten. Um, it can discuss their, it can be about their uh, religious or spiritual preferences, uh, what one can do during the cancer experience. It's also having to do with past and recent experiences with can their cancer care and the people they encountered um, during that treatment or that experience. Um, it's also affected by economic status and, of course, whether or not someone has access to medical care. And a person's worldview will even influence their decision-making process. The potential for cultural clash and ineffective communication 
during patient-providers' encounters is a reality. As we mentioned earlier, culture and communication can also impact the decision-making process related to cancer care. It is important for us as providers to respect the hierarchy for decision-making. And that may be really challenging because sometimes our biomedical model of medicine deeply values autonomy, privacy, and freedom to make one's own decisions about treatments and other related aspects of the cancer experience. However, we must be aware that these values or following these values are not the norm for some cultures. Some cultures value a hierarchy of decision-making, which is founded on collective discussion with family members, elders, or other respected members in their social support network system. As providers, we need to step out of our cultural world, that is the medical model world. We must remember not to use medical jargon, which can be confusing, um, especially when we're using different words that uh, can have a, a different meaning to, to um, individuals. Simple language is important, and we can also do periodic checks with our patients and their family members to see if we really are getting the information across the way we think. I, I just remember so many times that patients will say, well, I don't, remember, I don't remember anyone telling me about the importance of taking on medication that way, or I don't remember that I'm not supposed to be um, mixing different medications together, and yet I remember that we've, you know, they've received written instructions, they've received verbal instructions, they've had um, you know, one or two of the nurses sit down with them. So it is a challenging time to remember all of these things when someone is being hit with so many different types of communication and different um, issues related to that communication. And the other important issue to consider when we are having our discussions is how to frame the discussion especially when we're presenting news about a diagnosis, effects of treatment, or a need for another procedure. I believe it can be framed as the glass being half full or half empty. If we say the glass is half full, then that can always provide hope, while a glass that's half empty can do just the opposite. So, again, the way we frame our discussion, especially if we want to deliver news that's maybe not so positive or not so uh, not what one was hoping to hear. It'll be good to remember how do we frame that discussion. Patient and family members um, can also facilitate communication with their providers. Remember we said communication includes the patient, the families, and the providers. So the patients and families can let the providers know what their preferences are in relationship to who in the family has permission to participate in meetings with providers, who is the gatekeeper of all of the information, who is the person that's the go-to person that the provider can, can um, talk with if they're not able to always talk directly to the patient? It's also important that at times there, are, there is going to be a need for translators and interpreters. And so it's important to communicate effectively to them with them also so they can get the, the message that's essential to the health care provider. So in closing, I would just like to mention a few tips. Patient-centered care relies on the use of different styles of communication to understand decision-making preferences, traditional and non-traditional family roles, access to basic human needs such as food. We have to also be aware of our own um, ways or views of stereotyping or generalizing uh, different populations. 
I, and I don't have time to go all into all the different things that we can do to be culturally competent. There's a lot out there, and that would take a whole other discussion. But the main thing is effective communication is a core tenet of patient-centered care, and it's most critical during the cancer experience. Due to the nature of the cancer experience, we also have to remember communication is a dynamic process, so it's going to differ at different times along the continuum of that cancer experience. Communication can also be verbal and nonverbal. And again, did not have time to go into nonverbal communication, but we have to remember our body language is also very cr critical to all communication. Communication can be therapeutic and meaningful. We can enhance our communication by building rapport, establishing trust, speaking, and speaking to each other according to our cultural and linguistic preferences. Thank you very much, and this concludes my remarks. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Palos. That was really outstanding, and um, the way you've woven all those topics together, and I think um, your examples are very helpful to everyone as well. So uh, thank you so much for that really um, amazing presentation. I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. Um, our next speaker um, is Dr. Margaret Bevins, and Dr. Bevins is an oncology nurse. She's also captain of the United States Public Health Service, clinical nurse scientist, program director, scientific resources, nursing research and, and translational science, nursing department, National Institutes of Health Clinical Center. Now, Dr. Bevan is going to be addressing um, an important topic. I, in, in, uh, kind of before she begins, I just want to say a word. We've heard the, the terms patient and family-centered care as models. And for those to work, um, it does require both the provider, the physician, the healthcare team, to actually be very focused on patient-family needs. But it also does require certain approaches by people who are getting the care themselves. And so I've, Dr. Bevan is going to be addressing some of the things that are important for each of us to do as patients or caregivers to really have more effective communication with the healthcare team and make that work. So Dr. Bevan is going to address strategies for patients and caregivers to effectively communicate with the healthcare team, advocating for yourself and loved ones, and becoming involved in care decisions and staying involved in care decisions. So it's now my pleasure to turn this program over to Dr. Bevins. Thank you, Dr. Messner, for the opportunity to be on the call today and for that introduction. I would also like to take the opportunity to welcome all of the participants who are on the call today. Whether you're a healthcare provider or a person living with cancer or a caregiver of someone living with cancer, you've recognized the importance of staying informed and of getting support to navigate this experience. This is a really important step in coping successfully with cancer and its impact on your life as well as the lives of others around you. This can include your spouse or partner, children, parents, or even friends. As Dr. Givens mentioned earlier, often at least one family member or friend steps up to support their loved one living with cancer. This caregiver becomes a partner in the cancer journey, and their role is critically important to quality care for the patient living with cancer. This partnership, however, is characterized by many changes in existing roles and responsibilities among family members. These changes might include who's paying the bills or who's driving the children to school or who does the grocery shopping. Talking about and negotiating these roles and responsibilities 
allows everyone to find meaning and purpose in the cancer experience. They can also help reduce the burden to any one individual and support the very best care possible for the patient living with cancer. So effective communication, which you've heard a lot about today, is a really common theme throughout the the cancer journey. Effective communication is an essential component of this new relationship between the cancer patient and the caregiver, as well as with the healthcare team, which you've heard so much about today. Today, I'm therefore going to share some additional thoughts and some communication strategies for the person living with cancer, as well as their caregiver, especially as it relates to communicating with the healthcare team. This healthcare team can be a variety of individuals. It can be the physician, the nurse practitioner, or the physician assistant, the registered nurse, or the nutritionist, or the social worker. Each of these individuals on the team have a different set of skills to address the impact of cancer, whether it's physical, emotional, social, or financial. This effective communication is how you can get access to that expert information, which can improve the cancer experience. Studies show that people with cancer who are well-informed about the disease and treatment options usually have better outcomes and fewer side effects. However, some people do feel overwhelmed by too much information and do not know what to do with all those details. Therefore, one of the really early decisions to consider is how much information do you want and then share that preference with your healthcare team and others such as the caregiver in your family. Communicating with each other, leaning on each other, and sharing your preferences and concerns can help you feel closer to those in your family and reassure you that you're not alone on this journey. Communicating can also lead to a shared understanding about roles and responsibilities. The caregiver and person living with cancer should clarify their roles in managing appointments and communicating with the healthcare team. If the caregiver is going to help coordinate medical care, retrieve information about tests or medications, some paperwork will likely need to be reviewed and signed when you're interacting with your providers. Providers generally will not release information to anyone other than the patient without their permission. The Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, you may have heard of it called as HIPAA, requires doctors and other healthcare providers to get written authorization from the patient before they can share most health information about him or her with anyone else, including the caregiver. So understanding how this is implemented where you're receiving care is an important step to easing that burden along the cancer journey. A more recent policy is titled the CARE Act, Caregiver Advice, Record, and enable. And this can also help to ease the patient and caregiver burden. The CARE Act is being implemented at the state level and requires hospitals to record the name of the family caregiver on the medical record. It requires them to inform family caregivers when the patient, if they're in the hospital, is about to be discharged and provide the family caregiver with education and instruction on the medical task he or she might need to do when the patient is going home. This change, however, 
Although an important step in effective communication between the healthcare team and the caregiver is in the early stages of rollout, if you will, and only that I know of here in the United States. Although important, these policies are not enough to ensure quality communication with the healthcare team. Medical information can be difficult to understand, so I want to share a few more specific strategies for you to consider. Bring a team to, um, to the appointments, especially when you're learning new information. These, this might include changing a dressing or side effects of medications or getting results from a test. If someone can't be there with you, consider having them on speakerphone during the conversation or ask to adjust the time when the information is being shared. For example, if a caregiver works outside of the home, see if the appointment can be at the beginning or maybe the end of the day, which might allow for more flexibility with their employer. Keep a diary. Keep a diary of things you notice, visible signs or symptoms or honestly anything that seems to have changed. As you've heard, health providers are very interested in understanding your direct perspective. Without that, they may over or underestimate how you're feeling or tolerating your treatment. So despite what you think, the healthcare team wants and needs to hear all of the details to ensure quality care throughout your experience so remember, you are the center of the care that's being provided and have a voice in how things move forward. You could also make a list of questions. You can do this before seeing the provider and include your caregiver or other family members because they too might have questions that are important. During your appointment, write down the answers to the questions and other important parts of the conversation. If this is too much, ask the provider if you can tape the conversation. Then, whether you have notes or a tape, you can then share this information with your caregiver and other family members if they weren't able to be present. Remember also to speak up. If you do not understand something that is being explained, just say that. I don't understand. Remember, health outcomes are better when the patient has an accurate understanding. So if you're unsure about your understanding, you can also restate what you've heard back to the provider and let them validate that or offer correction. You can also clarify how to best communicate with your health provider because there are times in between appointments you might also have questions. If your concerns aren't urgent, but you don't want to wait until the next appointment, ask to have the healthcare team member call you. You can maybe coordinate fax or email as well, and if you send those questions in advance, they may be prepared when you arrive or place a call to you prior to the appointment. Now, these tips really are focused on being informed so that the patient and the caregiver can advocate for the best care of the person living with cancer. I just want to spend a moment now shifting to the caregiver. Often, the caregiver doesn't find time to advocate for themselves while they're focused on helping the individual um, dealing with the cancer. Caregivers have individual needs as well that can include emotional issues as well as physical symptoms. 
Sometimes these symptoms can be as bad as those being experienced by the patient. Serving as a caregiver is a really stressful but important aspect of the, of the cancer journey. But it's really critical that the caregiver stays strong, not only for their loved one, but for themselves. As they say on the airplane, you have to put your oxygen mask on first so that you can be strong to help others. Often the caregiver feels guilty, though, that they can't do enough, that they can't be present as much as they would like, especially when they're working outside of the home. This can leave them feeling out of the loop and create even more feelings of stress. One way to address this concern for the caregiver is to advocate for your role as a caregiver in the workplace. Consider a discussion that involves paid time off if that's an option, such as sick leave under the Family Medical Leave Act, or flexible schedules, or teleworking. In addition, many agencies these days may have employee assistance programs for counseling that can also help employees find balance between work and home, as well as wellness programs that can include strategies to reduce stress. When the caregiver has a concern related to their own health, they should communicate with a healthcare provider who will see them, the caregiver, as the patient. For example, if a caregiver is experiencing difficulty sleeping or notices their blood pressure is higher than normal, the caregiver should communicate with their provider. And if the provider suggests an appointment, it's a perfect time to lean on a friend or other family member to step in for the person living with cancer. A little social time for the patient is not such a bad thing, and that can occur while the caregiver is receiving the care that he or she needs to build resilience and stay healthy. In summary, navigating the cancer experience can be complex, and you've heard many wonderful details about that today. However, taking steps to communicate with others, avoid feeling alone, and working together with your partner and the healthcare team will help you successfully adjust and cope. Thank you again for the opportunity to be there today on the call. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Evans. That was outstanding, really wonderfully presented, and really, again, a focus on caregivers, um, so important in this whole process, um, and as well people living with cancer, but also that focus on the caregiver and, and, and the self-care piece and the advocating and so much more. So I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Thank you. And our, our final speaker is Ms. Sarah Kelly. Ms. Kelly is an oncology social worker, and she's our older adult program coordinator at Cancer Care. And Ms. Kelly is going to address Cancer Care's free psychosocial programs and services and the role of support groups. And I'm now going to turn this program over to Ms. Kelly. And she also will probably provide you with some other resources as well, but I'm going to just turn this program over to Ms. Kelly at this point. This has just been a fantastic call, and I want to thank all the speakers on the call and everyone participating today. We've got a lot of really good information. And really, you know, what we've been talking about is your quality of life as you go through this. And so what I'd like to talk about also is the importance of creating a support network. 
as part of your care and how cancer care can be a part of that network. So just a little bit about us. We're a national nonprofit organization. We provide free professional support services to anyone affected by cancer. Our programs include individual counseling. We do that face-to-face -face in the New York area and then over the phone nationally. We have support groups, which we also provide face-to-face -face in New York and over the phone nationally, and online nationally and internationally. We have education programs like the one we're on today. We can provide practical help. We can assist you navigate uh, the healthcare system. And we also provide some financial assistance as well as uh, chemotherapy copay assistance. All of our services are provided by licensed master's level oncology social workers, and they're completely free of charge. And an oncology social worker really is someone trained in how a diagnosis of cancer affects a person and his family or uh, friends, really how it affects the whole support network around that person. We're also trained to help patients and their supports tackle the problems that accompany the disease, such as financial demands, physical changes, social adjustment, and overall psychological impact in care. And I find that adjusting to and finding ways of coping with the diagnosis in the areas I just mentioned is an important part of the healing process, and I actually consider it to be a part of treatment. As you know, cancer affects the whole person, and that includes um, the support network. It includes the family and friends. I know we've talked a lot today about caregivers, and so really, you know, it's the person and then all of the people in that network asking for help, whether you're a patient, you're a caregiver, um, by joining a support group or contacting a social worker is really important and I actually consider it to be a, it's a sign of strength. You don't have to do this alone. In joining a support group, you can connect with others who are going through a similar situation or maybe experiencing similar problems. With individual counseling, you have a space that's just yours to voice any concerns and navigate any of the issues I mentioned earlier. And the connections can help light, uh, lessen the isolation um, that many people with cancer and their loved ones experience. Feeling well emotionally, I think, can help you better cope with the diagnosis and treatment and help you navigate it, improve your health outcomes, and just have an overall uh, really important effect on this. Right now, um, we're offering several different um, support groups, including telephone, face-to-face, -face, and online support groups. We're also, again, providing individual counseling face-to-face -face in New York nationally on the phone. If you're interested in any of those services, please contact us, and I'm going to go over our contact information uh, in a moment. I also just briefly wanted to touch on what Dr. Palos was mentioning about food insecurity. And you know, if you find that you are in a situation where you're choosing, okay, I, you know, I can't get my treatment, I need to eat, or I'm going to get my treatment and I'm not going to eat, and this actually goes uh, even to things like utilities. You know, I'm not going to pay my electric bill because I need to get my treatment or vice versa. If you find you're in this situation, please, please communicate it. You know, communicate it, I would say, to the medical team. You know, Dr. Palos was talking about just the embarrassment that comes up with that. And I've seen this time and time again in working with people. 
Uh, but a lot of people find themselves in this situation, you know, when you're, let's say income goes down or you're on a fixed income and all of your expenses are going up because you're going through this, it's really, really hard um, to get through it and not at some point get some help. There is help out there. So if you find that's happening, please, please communicate it. Um, you know, Dr. Bevins was saying, you know, speak up that we the, we want to know, you know, the healthcare team wants and actually needs to know what's happening for patients. So, um, you know, I know it can be difficult. There may be feelings of embarrassment, but it's such an important thing to do uh, to share that with the medical team. I'm also just going to very, very briefly go over some resources that you can reach out to yourself. So the first thing I want to let you know about is the Magnolia Meals at Home program, which is something Cancer Care is involved with in the New Jersey area. It is a meal delivery program. The idea behind it, um, of course, is to improve quality of life and also to improve health outcomes. So it's for patients and family, you know, the idea really being that there's a nutritious meal, it's there, it's, you know, maybe in the freezer and the family or the patient doesn't have to worry about cooking. Right now, programs are uh, available in New Jersey, uh, some areas of New York, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and the Raleigh-Durham area of North Carolina. To find out more about it, um, probably the easiest thing to do is go to their website where you can put in your zip code and see if it's in your area. And that's www.magnoliamealsathome.com. If you're also looking for resources, uh, and this is for meals, but also if you're struggling with any other bills that you may be having, utilities, um, just sort of those day-to-day living bills, I do recommend calling your local Department of Health and Human Services. And uh, you can find that, again, going to the medical team, they would be able to give you that information. Also, you can call the United Way. They always have those types of referrals on hand. And uh, that's just dialing 211 from your phone. So know that there's some resources available for you. And you can call us. And I cannot stress this enough. You know, you don't have to do this alone. We're here. So if any of these issues are coming up for you and you're not quite sure where to go, you maybe haven't talked to the medical team yet, call us. And you can reach us on our Hope Line. It's 1-800-813-4673. Or you can visit our website and that's www.cancercare.org. And our website, I love our website, it's great. It has a lot of information, very comprehensive information, not only on support, but actually on all of our programs, as well as your diagnosis and treatment and ways of coping as you go through this. You know, we've learned a lot from today's program. My hunch is there's going to be a lot of questions. And just know um, that we're here to help you. Uh, If you have questions about today's workshop or about any of our services, don't hesitate to contact us. And lastly, please remember you're not alone in this. You know, we really are here with you. Our services are here to help. Thanks so much for the attention and the opportunity to speak today. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Kelly. That was really excellent and extraordinary. And thank you for the resources as well that are available for people. And of course, um, when you're looking for a resource, it's probably you've got some you've been given, but you also can contact your healthcare team, but you also can call our 800 number, our helpline number, and our staff will have a whole database of resources to provide for you. So that's that's just a very efficient way for you to get one-stop shopping to get what you need help with. Now, we do have time for questions. We have a lot of time for questions. I'm going to ask Andrea 
to bring all of our speakers on board and also to explain to all of you how to queue up for questions. And we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. And because this was such a lot of topics we covered today, that your questions, we welcome all of your questions. And um, if we don't get to one of your questions at the very end of the call, I will give you resources to get your questions answered. So, um, But for now, Andrea, let's see how many we can take at the moment. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star and then one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And our first question comes from the line of Stephanie Kay. Your line is open. Thank you so much, Caroline. Again, this is an excellent conference. Thank you. Um, I, have two I have a question basically for the two registered nurses, I believe. Um, there are several of them there. My question is, I am a healthcare professional, social worker, and nurse myself, and 10-year breast cancer survivor. I'd like to know what to do. When I went through uh, cancer uh, 10 years ago, I had my significant other was always there. Now he is going through uh, cancer himself, and he has to have radiation, and it's going to be in reverse. He was always there. Now I now it's coming to be that I'm going to need to be there, and there's no other family members. So it's very difficult when you have to be, you know, it changes the roles. And I wanted to ask the questions about that, how to deal with that. So really how to deal with that role change is what you're really talking about. Um, yes. Thank you, Stephanie. It's an excellent question. Probably there are many on the call who are facing this. Um, I'm wondering if, uh, Ms. Kelly, if you'd like to start with that question, actually, and then we'll have others add to it as well. Yeah, so, you know, this is, I mean, it's one of the hardest things, I think, that's out there with that changing of roles. And uh, open communication, I think, is a big thing. So just acknowledging that the, the roles are changing and you are both figuring it out together, right? So it's just navigating it almost at the same time. You know, it sounds like you are the go-to person, which is very tough um, because it's it's you basically the one who's there. It's also thinking outside the box a little bit, and you may have already done this, but uh, who else can be there and maybe not there, let's say, as like a main support, but maybe can be there for um, smaller things. So I'm thinking about running errands or even, you know, things around the house. Are there friends, family members maybe that you wouldn't think to ask that maybe would like to help? So, uh, so those types of things. And something also that Dr. Bevan said um, that's, you know, easier said than done, but it's putting that oxygen mask on yourself. You know, if you find that you're not able to breathe, that things are so overwhelming, you're going to need that first before you're going to be able to help him. So I think open communication, um, is sort of thinking outside the box of who else can be there and what other services also could be there to help, and then making sure that you're getting that oxygen that you need. Excellent. Thank you. And Dr. Bevins, do you want to comment on that as well? Absolutely. Thank you for sharing um, your experience with us. I think the reversal of roles can be very tricky. Um, two things came into my mind as you were um, as you were presenting the story. One is to remember, as a nurse and a social worker who is a problem solver and has not only um, sort of has a skill set to offer advice, but also has personal experience that might offer advice, to make sure you're letting there be room um, for an individual experience by your significant other and respecting that individual experience. Because you may not always be, even though you have a lot of experience, the very best person to offer that counsel. 
but might need to be more of a listener, and then ask questions of the providers or help um, your significant other ask those questions so that the counsel can come from other experts, um, considering that you're one as well, to make sure that um, you are respecting that individual experience that um, he may having. And um, I think I think that really does cover it. I think it's just recognizing that even though there might be similarities, there have been things that have changed, and there is variation between the two of you, and reaching out to others to help with the counsel might be helpful. Excellent. Thank you. And uh, Dr. Given, did you want to add um, as well? And I think I think it's been covered well. Thanks. Okay. All right. All right. Thanks. Um, okay, then our next question. Our next question comes from Emil S. Your line is open. Hi. Uh, most of the speakers talked about the physical treatments of cancer. Uh, very little was touched on the emotional and social concerns of cancer before, during, and after treatment. It seems once the cancer treatment is over, the patient is just left to go on his own, but may not be emotionally and socially capable of resuming a cancer-free life. Uh, what do you suggest? Well, that's an excellent question, Emil, and thank you for being on the call today. Um, and I think I'm going to ask Dr. Fleischman if you could start with that question. Sure. Um, that's an, a, a very um, a significant part of what we all need to do to make sure that uh, everybody has access to all the tools that they need. Sometimes that's a family member who's been through cancer before, as in one of the other questions. Sometimes it's uh, the staff at the cancer treatment facility, and oftentimes that's an agency like Cancer Care who can do um, counseling and help uh, reframe a lot of the things and answer questions and provide a little reflection on the experience. It's really, really important. Lots of people think that that's a great idea, but not for them, and um, from what I've seen over you know, cancer treatment in many hundreds or thousands of people by now over many years, it's absolutely essential. Um, and that the fact that it can be provided either locally or over the phone or online is a really important thing. Thank you. And Dr. Taylor, do you want to add anything as well? I think it's uh, what you said is very true, that emotional aspect is a, a thread throughout the whole cancer continuum. And um, and it can be a combination of a response to good news and a response to not so good news. So it's important to look around and see what type of resources are in your communities, in your faith-based organizations, um, friends that may want you know to just sit down and and listen and just let you um, let a person speak, whether it be the the patient or or a, a caregiver or family member. I think one of the things that's real important is that it's also good to celebrate the milestones that happen during the caregiver experience. So many times we focus on some of the the negative news and um, don't always then focus on the celebration, even if it's like the completion of a chemotherapy regimen uh, or if it's saying, okay, that you know, I'm ready to move on to the next, like, to the survivorship um, period of, of this whole cancer experience. Or I got out of the hospital now. Little, the little things like that, you know, use those as milestones that are significant in the cancer experience. And so 
the emotional aspect is I, I believe it's going to be very subjective for each individual. Um, it's important to keep that communication open, and you'll be surprised where you'll be able to find support for for that emotional part of you. It can be someone that you don't. I mean, someone that you don't even really know can provide some aspect of emotional support if you just maybe start talking. I saw a lot of that with you know we have our um, patient-centered rooms where everybody just kind of sits there and talks and everything. And I saw one of the most moving experiences where. Somebody had gotten some really bad news, and there was a group there that did not speak English, and they would bring their own tea-making devices. And so they made a, one of the a woman made a cup of tea, took it over to the individual, and offered it to her. And that was, you know, that was an act of kindness, and that really helped that person and and their love, their uh, the member that was there, the family member. So gestures like that can make a, a lot of difference when you're going through all of these types of things in the cancer experience. Excellent. And uh, Ms. Kelly, do you want to comment on the whole? Because it's a really an important issue and a focus um, of a lot of uh, cancer support organizations. So if you could say something about that. Absolutely. So, you know, there is a lot of uh, up and down uh, as you're going forward on the journey. And the emotional aspect of it is is so important and so huge and definitely needs to be addressed. And you said something um, that really resonated with me and the work that I do here in terms of like what happens after treatment, right? What happens when you're post-treatment? And there can be this feeling um, or this idea that, okay, well, once you're done, you're done, right? That's it. You're good. You finish your treatment. Everyone's happy. Okay, great. Um, but the reality is that it's not done, that you go for follow-ups and you may still be thinking about it, you may still be processing uh, the trauma of going through it. And so it's keeping, as Dr. Palo said, that communication open, um, that you are communicating that with family members and friends if they're able to hear it and acknowledge it, that this, yes, your treatment's ended, but you know, you're still processing this, you're still going through it, you're still getting follow-ups and scans and blood work and all of those things. And I also think finding uh, support, and that could be friends or family um, that are there for you. It also could be with others who are post-treatment, um, support groups, or it could be with an individual counselor. Uh, you know, I think it's important to find those different sources of support in this because there are a lot of ups and downs as you're going through it, and it doesn't you know, stop necessarily once treatment stops. You know, your care continues. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and we have another question from one of our telephone uh, participants. Our next question comes from the line of Rosemary M. Your line is open. Yes. Uh, good afternoon. I was calling it, I, um, during the beginning phase of the uh, webinar, there, uh, Dr. Edith Mitchell had discussed like two areas as it relates to treatment, the novel uh, cancer care treatment, and she discussed the role of precision medicine with respect to cancer treatment. And I was kind of curious. She kind of touched on the uh, Moonshot Initiative uh, for finding a better treatment for cancer patients. And I would like to know, are there a list of uh, healthcare facilities available where patients can inquire about um, better treatment for their diagnosis of cancer? Because I, I didn't recall her indicating any type of information in that particular area. 
That's an excellent question. I'm going to ask Dr. Fleischman if you could just um, really talk about the concept of the comprehensive cancer centers and the larger centers, the um, centers that have uh, expertise in particular types of cancers, so that one can um, research that a bit. Sure. I, I think one of the goals of the moonshot under uh, former Vice President Joe Biden is to gather lots of information from lots of different cancer centers and put that all together so there is one repository of all the information. And I don't know that there is exactly one now, but there are places to turn. Um, it's, it's fragmented, but not completely. There's still, there's still some organization here. Um, there are two uh, types of accreditations, uh, well, three types of accreditations, actually, for cancer centers now. Um, they, the larger centers uh, are under the umbrella of the National Cancer Institute Comprehensive Cancer Centers or Clinical Cancer Centers, and these are the larger centers that provide um, patient care as well as um, clinical trials as well as laboratory research for the comprehensive clinical centers. Uh, there are 20-something I, 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 around the country or 30-something. These are the really big uh, cancer hospitals that everybody, know, and everybody knows their name. Uh, but there should be information about that on the, or I know there is, on the National Cancer Institute website. The uh, second place you can turn is to the uh, American College of Surgeons Commission on Cancer, and that is accessible both through their website, uh, which I know is facs.org slash cancer, or through the American Cancer Society. And uh, they uh, accredit about 1,500 centers across the United States in the larger as well as the mid-sized and even smaller community hospitals, um, which have to really go through rigorous scrutiny uh, every three years, including an in-person visit. And there are 34 standards they need, that they need to meet for um, patient care, for all the services that we have been discussing today, and um, uh, provision of data to the state cancer uh, registries as well as the National Cancer Database so that we can really learn in anonymized ways, you know, no names on all these, um, these uh, reports that go in about um, how cancer is treated and how we can do better. Um, the facilities provide a list of all of their services and that can be accessible through the Commission on Cancer uh, website. Um, and if you go to the American Cancer Society, you're sent back to the other website. It's important to realize that 1,500 centers is about 30% of the, all of the offices and clinics and, and hospitals that treat cancer in the United States. It's not that many, but that, those 30% of facilities also treat about 75% of the people in the whole United States that are diagnosed or treated with cancer. So it really is a large body of information, and there are facilities in just about, I think, every state, including Puerto Rico. Um, the, uh, there's a, a, a ACCC, uh, which are community can cancer centers that also uh, provide information online to help direct you to um, the, proper, the proper place, and often these are uh, in smaller cities uh, across the United States. I think the important thing is to get to uh, an accredited center and then um, either through your primary care doctor or through the center get to a second opinion and that sometimes may be in another city 
which is expensive because most medical insurance coverages don't provide money for transportation or lodging or meals when you go to another city for a um, second opinion. But cancer has gotten so specialized sometimes that if there are four major types of leukemia, let's say, there is a, an expert in, one, in each of those types, and um, your local people will know who they are because they're the ones that um, have published papers in the area. So start with the local people and make sure that um, the opinion is sound and then verified by a, a second opinion. Well, thank you. I actually want to thank all of our speakers today on this um, program. This has been an extraordinarily uh, extraordinary program, um, and you have our speakers have been extraordinary. They can't hear us clapping for them, but they're wonderful. And I also want to thank all of our participants as well who've asked really such great questions. And now I know there are many questions that we didn't answer, so I wanted to just get to that first and foremost. And actually, and also in reference to the last call or two, I just hope it will be helpful. To you. So for any medically related questions, of course, your own healthcare team is critically important. But sometimes many of you would like to go to a really expert place to get your questions answered that will not cost you anything, that are that's free. And the National Cancer Institute does offer, it has both a toll-free number, 1-800-422-6237. And I should say all the resources we give you are going to be sent to you um, electronically and also by mail. So you're all going to get these resources that have been mentioned throughout this program today. We'll put that list together for you. Um, they also have are accessible um, uh, through www.cancer.gov. That is their website, and they also have a live chat feature. And what's really good about that is many of you have different types of cancers, and some of you have unusual cancers or rare cancers, and it's really nice to go to a place where you can you know, have a conversation with somebody either on the phone or as a, on the web as a live chat and really explore with them the type of cancer you have and where are the specialty areas for that treatment. That is very important, of course, and I think we've, a number of our speakers have touched on that throughout the program. Now, if, on the other hand, you're really looking for some help, more of a what we call psychosocial in nature, really help with just the coping with, this, with the journey, living with cancer throughout the cancer journey, and more of those sort of emotional, social, practical issues, then I would suggest you would go ahead and call Cancer Care at 1-800-813-4673 or visit our website at www.cancercare.org. So our services are a range of services, from practical to financial assistance, to counseling with one of our oncology social workers, support groups on the telephone or online, um, various publications that you can access for free from our website, and also uh, these programs as well. Perhaps most importantly, as we conclude the program today, I don't want any one of you to think that you're alone in coping with cancer or in, in living with cancer. Um, throughout the journey of living with cancer. We want you to now know that you're connected to a whole range of resources. And although the program is uh, offered by Cancer Care, there are many other organizations out there that also can be of help to you. And we actually, all of you have a listing of all of our collaborating organizations. Um, Dr. Fleischman's mentioned the American Cancer Society, and there are a whole range of other organizations as well. And again, our staff will help you to utilize all the resources out there to help you to get your needs met. So with that being said, I want to thank you all for your participation today. I look forward to being on other programs that we offer, and, and thank you so much for, for your time, and I hope that this was helpful to all of you.
Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.